Hello, I'm Janus. And I'm Tessa. Welcome to our podcast that celebrates wordiness and nerdiness and sometimes plain absurdiness. Please join us for today's episode of Your Your New New Favorite Favorite Word. Welcome to episode 14. It's crazy, Tessa. I love it. Think back to the origins of this podcast. Do you remember? (laughs) It was just this thing we were going to do to keep us busy during the pandemic. Yeah, something fun. And here we are, 14 episodes later, and no (laughs) sign of an end of the pandemic. (laughs) Or our podcast. Or our podcast. Still going (laughs) strong. I'd like to take a second or two and give a shout out to superfan Anne, who made multiple comments on our Facebook page this week. We love the interaction, support, and feedback. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts and reactions. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Anne. Um, Let's just jump right into it. Tessa, what have you got for us today? Well, today I've got a bunch of pandemonium, if I can pronounce the word. (laughs) (laughs) And it caused pandemonium just trying to say it. So somehow this week I came across this word in reading I was doing, and I was curious. My first question was, is the word pandemonium related to pandemic? Oh, interesting. And the shorter answer is no, it's not. (laughs) But but I did learn some really fascinating things about it. So pandemic comes from the Greek. So the prefix pan meaning all, and then demos meaning people. So think democracy, demographic, Mm. things like that. Um, But pandemonium which in the original is spelled with what's called an ash symbol, the A connected to an E that you see in Greek, but it's still pronounced pandemonium. And this word was coined by John Milton in his epic poem from the 1600s, Paradise Lost, which I haven't actually read, but would like to now. So this poem, just an interesting side note, I, I came across... A cool word in this uh, in the process of researching this that this poem was written when he was in his 50s after he had gone completely blind oh wow and so he had to have help to write it down i don't think i knew that no i hadn't known that before either um so he did it with the help of scribes but the article that i read about it instead of calling them scribes called them amanuenses so spelled A-M-A-N-U-E-N-S-E-S. Have you ever heard that word before? I think I have, but I... Oh, you're cooler than me. <laughs> couldn't tell you what it means. Okay. So that's the plural. And with S-I-S is a singular, amanuensis. So that comes from amanu, which is short for servus amanu, meaning like a hand servant. Oh. Okay. And they just called it Amanu, meaning a secretary, like a scribe, someone that wrote down dictation from someone that they worked for. So they took that Amanu and added the ensis ending, meaning belonging to. So an amanuensis is a scribe. Cool word. Just a little side note on John Milton. (laughs) Fascinating. Okay, so in Paradise Lost, it's a story of heaven and hell and the fall of Adam and Eve Satan plays a big part in it. Uh, And there is a great description of the capital city of hell. And the name that he coined for this capital city is Pandemonium. 
Interesting. Yeah. So, oh, I think I know where this is going. Okay. So, interestingly, he joined the Greek prefix pan, meaning all, and then the Latin word (laughs) (laughs) demonium, meaning evil uh, evil spirit, to mean the abode of all demons. That was the name of the city, cool. capital city of hell. <laughs> but he didn't care about the different origins of those. He <laughs> He's just, just like, let's just... Right, and his readers wouldn't really probably know either, <laughs> right? <laughs> so he was just coining words left and right with whatever languages he wanted. <laughs> he, I can respect had, that. Yeah, he had the power. <laughs> the power of words. I love it. <laughs> So that's where the word pandemonium originally came from. It was used to mean hell in general, okay? So kind of a, a representation of hell, calling it pandemonium. So this was a fascinating little side note too. So there is a term called Taylor's Hell. So this is a place in a tailor's shop into which shreds or offcuts of material are thrown. <laughs> and maybe there's something that's done with those eventually, but that's a term, Taylor's Hell, which is now obsolete. Okay, it was used from the 1500s to the 1800s about, but sometimes it was called a Taylor's Pandemonium. Interesting. <laughs> so that gives kind of the idea of using pandemonium to mean hell. And then gradually, like by the 1770s, Um, It started to be further applied to something that was considered a center of vice or wickedness, Mm -hmm. kind of by association, something hellish, right? Um, So an example from the OED is, every province would in turn appear a paradise and a pandemonium. (laughs) And then a quote from Mark Twain from one of his works, they had made the place a pandemonium every night with their howlings and wailings. Interesting. So kind of a place where demonic sounds were emerging. Kind of like kids' bedrooms. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So we know the meaning of pandemonium because we have children, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So eventually by the 1860s, so this is, you know, hundreds of years later, but it started to be used a little more figuratively to mean wild or lawless confusion or an uproar, a wild and noisy disorder, tumult, or chaos. So this is where pandemonium and children collide, (laughs) right? (laughs) We know about wild and noisy disorder, tumult, and chaos, right? So that is what I found about pandemonium, and it's it's fun. I didn't know about the the history of that word before. Yeah, I love that, that idea of making a portmanteau from... Words from two different languages, <laughs> mash them together. Yes, the Pan- power to coin words. Yeah, I love it. to all of us. <laughs> That's brilliant. All right. Well, thank you, Tessa. Yeah. Um, for me, I'd like to start by talking about phono-semantic matching. <laughs> this is where a word is borrowed from one language into another, but then modified phonetically and or semantically to fit roots in the borrowing language. Okay. So, of course, that's clear as mud. So let's look at an example. For example, the French word chartreuse, and I'm going to surprise you by not going where you think I'm going, but chartreuse refers to a Carthusian monastery. Mm. It's the French word for a Carthusian monastery, where Carthusian refers to a particular order of monks. Okay. So in English, a Carthusian monastery is called a charter house, which was borrowed from the French word mm-hmm. and then modified via phonosemantic matching. You have chartreuse, charter house. Interesting. Yeah. So, incidentally, the English word chartreuse, referring to a shade of green, 
came about because it referred to the color of a French liqueur that was made by the Carthusian monks called green chartreuse. That is fantastic. So it's another example of how English takes the wrong word when borrowing, (laughs) but that's neither here nor there. So So another example. The French adapted the Choctaw word for the bowfin and called it choupique. So what's a bowfin? It's a kind of fish. Okay. It's a kind of fish, yeah. So they borrowed the Choctaw word for this fish and named it a choupique. Okay. English then borrowed the French word and changed it to choupike, <laughs> though the fish is not any sort of pike. So you have choupique to choupike. Yeah. People do that, right? They try to associate with something they're familiar with. Exactly. I've heard of Almost that. like folk etymology kind of things, yeah, right? exactly. So that's phonosemantic matching. So my question now is, what do you call it when the phenomenon happens within the same language? So let's say um, an English word is transformed by a phonosemantic matching into another English word or phrase. If I were to say, for all intensive purposes, <laughs> instead of for all intents and, and purposes, or on the spurt of the moment, <laughs> instead of spur of the moment. Taking it for granite. There's another good one, exactly. <laughs> so curiously, this phenomenon had no name until 2003, <laughs> when Mark Lieberman of The Language Log shared a story about a woman who wrote egg corn when she meant to say acorn. Fascinating. He compared the phenomenon to folk etymology, malapropisms, mondegreens, but found it different enough to deserve its own name and asked readers what it should be called. Oh, I love that. A little crowdsourcing. Yeah, a bunch of linguists get together. So Jeff Pullum suggested acorn in the same tradition as mondegreen, right? Uh Let's just call it an acorn. And so that's what it's called. Oh, I love it. And... Eggcorn it is. So since being identified, there's lists that have popped up all over the internet, of course, identifying and enumerating eggcorns and defining what exactly an eggcorn is. There's even an eggcorn database, <laughs> which I'll link to in the show notes. It's really, it's really fun. That eggcorn database is pretty careful to say that eggcorns are not just random misspellings. Um, the alterations often make a lot of sense, especially if you don't consider them etymologically, like take it for granted, right? Mm-hmm. You can see how people might make sense of that in their heads or mm-hmm. for all intensive purposes or mm-hmm. spurt of the moment, right? <laughs> um, an egg corn. It is kind of shaped like an egg and it's a seed, like a mm-hmm. kernel of corn, right? So you can see how someone might justify it in their heads why it's called that. Some other, I'll give you three more examples of some great egg corns that many of you have probably heard before. A mute point, <laughs> right? The phrase is actually a moot, M-O-O-T point where moot was originally an assembly called to discuss or debate something. Mm-hmm. Moot then became an adjective describing something that is open to discussion or debate, uh, which means a moot point is one that is actually debatable, that can be discussed. <laughs> Fascinating. But since it's also come to refer to something that has little value or relevance, that makes sense that people would say that the point is mute or silenced. <laughs> uh, another great egg corn is to cut off one's nose despite one's face. <laughs> The actual phrase is to spite one's face, S-P-I-T-E, rather than despite. You say cut off one's nose to spite one's face. When you cut off your nose to spite your face, you're doing something harmful to yourself in an act of petty revenge. Mm-hmm. But you can see how people would use despite. We don't talk about spite very much. Mm-hmm. But we do say despite quite a bit. And this one, I really liked this one. Death nail. 
Instead of what? Instead of death knell. Oh. So it's popped up actually in newspapers and TV. Wow. Um, the Eggcorn database quotes Fox Business from 2017 saying, Bernie Sanders' single-payer plan is a death nail for baby boomers. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> what they meant to say is death knell, K-N-E-L-L. Which like is, the ringing of a bell. Yeah, right? slow tolling of a bell, exactly. Yeah. But it's understandable how it gets changed to nail since the phrase last nail in the coffin means a very similar thing. Wow. And in fact, CIO Magazine in 2017 blends the two phrases <laughs> and says the final death nail in a company's coffin. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? Yes. I love that. So there's plenty more. That Eggcorn database is a lot of fun. I'm excited to look at that. That sounds like so it's much really fun. really great. And what's really cool about it is it includes a lot of exhaustive examples from publications mm-hmm. and citations and analysis. So it's, it's really fun. The cool thing is, like we've talked about before, is eventually if those things get used enough, they will become part of the usage that's in the dictionary, right? Exactly. And this Acorn database actually has tags, and some of them are tagged as like, common usage. Like this is... People say the sound. Yeah. yeah. I think mute point is an example of one of those, right? That's just mm-hmm. how it's said. So it's really fascinating. But Acorn isn't even my new favorite word. <laughs> I stumbled upon my actual <laughs> new favorite word. I love it. When reading about early examples of Acorns before they were called Acorns. There's a story told by Desiridius Erasmus in a letter written in 1516 in Latin <laughs> about a poorly educated Catholic priest who, in reciting the post-communion mass, meant to say, quod ore sumpsimus domine, meaning, what we have received in the mouth, Lord. But instead it said, quod ore mumpsimus domine. Mumpsimus is not a word in Latin. <laughs> But when the priest was later corrected, he persisted in saying mumpsimus instead of sumpsimus. Oh, Whether from force of habit or from refusing to believe he was wrong, it doesn't mm-hmm. say. But just that idea of he was corrected and he continued to say it wrong. Mm-hmm. So this word mumpsimus, M-U-M-P-S-I-M-U-S, thus came to describe any person who obstinately clings to an erroneous <laughs> practice or belief, even after being shown the error of their ways. Oh, wow. So it can refer to both the belief, the incorrect belief, as well as the person who believes that thing incorrectly. I love that there's a term for that. Isn't that awesome? Yes. And in fact, it was really popular in the, fifth, in the 16th and 17th centuries. <laughs> we need to bring it back. Mumpsimus and sumpsimus became proverbial among Protestants in the early English Reformation. <laughs> um, it shows up in 16th century writings, like William Tyndale hmm. in 1530 wrote that the men whom Cardinal Wolsey asked to research Catherine of Aragon were all, quote, Lawyers and other doctors and mumpsimuses of divinity. <laughs> mumpsimuses is fun to say. <laughs> and King Henry V in or King Henry VIII, excuse me, in fifteen forty-five, said in a speech before Parliament that quote, "Some be too stiff in their old mumpsimus, others be too busy and curious in their new sumpsimus." <laughs> and much more recently. A. Leslie Derbyshire used it in a 1981 management science book to describe managers who know how to do a better job but choose not to. Interesting. So that's my new favorite word, mumpsimus. (laughs) I feel like there are a great many people in the world today whom it could describe, Yes. perhaps even myself. (laughs) Well, thank you. That was a lot of fun. What a great set of words and concepts. Yeah, I loved digging into those. That was fun. Yeah, thanks for sharing. 
And thanks to our listeners for joining us. We don't know if you're having as much fun as we are, but this podcast has been such a great experience for us. As always, we would love any feedback or responses you may have to share. Let us know what's your new favorite word. Thank you.